on the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th day of the month, in the 14th year after the city was struck down, on that very day, the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me to the city. In visions of God, he brought me to the land of Israel, and he set me down on a very high mountain, on which was a structure like a city to the south. And he brought me there, behold, there was a man whose appearance was like bronze, with a linen cord and a measuring reed in his hand, and he was standing in the gateway. And the man said to me, Son of man, look with your eyes, and hear with your ears, and set your heart upon all that I shall show you. For you were brought here in order that I might show it to you. Declare all that you see to the house of Israel. This is the very word. This is the very, very word of God. All right. So here we are. We've arrived at Ezekiel's 40th chapter, which begins the last section of the book. These last nine chapters form one long, unified section, which brings the entire prophecy of Ezekiel to a close. Now, those who are at home with the Old Testament will be intrigued by what they find in Ezekiel's final vision. Ezekiel receives here a vision of a new temple, a new Torah, and a new distribution of the land of Israel among the 12 tribes. But most of us, if we're honest, have a hard time finding any of this material interesting or having even the slightest clue why this material matters to us today. So our task today and in the next four weeks, as we draw our study of Ezekiel, Ezekiel to a close, I think this is the 21st sermon in Ezekiel, we're getting to the end, uh, our task will be to make some progress on answering those kinds of questions. We can begin by reminding ourselves that the New Testament depends on the Old Testament, and claims to be the Old Testament's fulfillment. To the extent that we remain unfamiliar with the Jewish story in the Old Testament and the hope of the Jewish story that's outlined for us there, to that extent, to be frank, we will really not grasp the New Testament message and its claim to be the fulfillment of that story and hope. So to that point, Ezekiel 40 to 48 is indispensable. If you want to know the great hope of the Christian gospel and message, you really need to get some handles on Ezekiel's vision in these last chapters. And lest you think I am exaggerating, let me point out that the last two chapters of the New Testament, Revelation 21 and 22, are largely drawn from Ezekiel's last vision in Ezekiel 40 to 48. So again, if you want to grasp the Christian hope, then you need to see that it is the fulfillment of the great Jewish hope 
a hope which is conveyed to us in passages like these last nine chapters of Ezekiel. And by the way, the stuff at the end of Revelation is not there to whet your appetite for speculations about the future. It is there to inspire hopeful action in the present. The material in Revelation 21 and 22, the last two chapters in the Bible, drawn largely from Ezekiel 40 to 48, is not there to give you all kinds of endless speculations about what's yet to come. It's there to inspire hopeful mission action in the present. So this morning, my task is to help us consider in the introduction to this last great section of Ezekiel, the first four verses of Ezekiel 40, to introduce us to what's to come. Here, in this last great vision that Ezekiel receives, he, is, he gets this vision and indicates to us its significance by telling us when he received the vision, where the vision happens, and what he was supposed to do with it. When the vision happens, where the vision happens, and then what do we do with it? So first, pay close attention to when this vision happened. This final section begins with one last date notice. In the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th day of the month, in the 14th year after the city was struck down. Now, one of the distinguishing features of Ezekiel is these kinds of date notices. We've seen several along the way. Specific time that is given. They're significant for a whole host of reasons. On the one hand, they anchor us to real time in history. We can trace these dates back to a specific moment in real ancient history. But they are also here not just to mark significant moments in history in general. They're here to mark significant moments in what we call redemptive history. Now, by redemptive history, let's remind ourselves what we mean. We're referring to significant moments in Israel's history. Because God has promised that his great salvation, the promise that he has made to all of creation, will be done in and through Israel. So that's why these moments are important. The date notice here and elsewhere in Ezekiel may not matter to us much if we do not care much about the significance of Jewish history. This week marks the 161st anniversary of General Ignacio Zaragoza's inspirational victory at the Battle of Puebla. Did you know that? I doubt most of us find that date very significant, except for the fact that it gives us the excuse here in the United States to eat a bunch of Mexican food and apparently to consume about as much beer as we do for the Super Bowl, Cinco de Mayo. Why then would we Gentiles care about this vision and when it happens? 
this moment in Israel's history? Why would that matter to you and to me? Well, because to be a Christian, Paul tells us in Romans 11, is to be grafted into Israel's story. Salvation is from the Jews, Jesus asserted in John 4, 22. God's great redemptive acts in history are found right here within Israel's story. So what this salvation is that Jesus was referring to when he spoke to the woman at the well can only be understood by what God promised he would do to Israel and fulfilled in Israel. You're looking for God's great promises and fulfillment. Well, you got to know what he promised, what he said that he would fulfill. So much of our confusion about who God is. By the way, I was thinking of that when we sang that last song. Uh, this always happens to me. Uh, show me who you are and fill me with your heart. I was thinking that show me who this God is. We have all kinds of assumptions about who we think God is. What we think if there is a God, he would be like. That prayer, show me who you are. You want to know who this God is? Well, then you got to know the story of Israel. Because this is where God says he would bring about his fulfillment. So much of our confusion about who God is and why he does what he does, what it is he's promised to do, comes about because we have disengaged from Israel's great story. So... What date are we talking about here? The 25th year of our exile, Ezekiel says. He also says it's the 14th year after the city was struck down. So that puts us in the year 573 B.C. What's notable in ancient history about 573 B.C.? Answer, apparently nothing. Except for the fact that this is when Ezekiel has the vision. And the answer that he gives to, to note its significance seems to be found in the numbers 25, 14, and the fact that this vision comes at the beginning of the year. So first, the number 25. Oh, here comes all that weird Bible numerology stuff, right? Well, here's the thing. The number 25 is certainly significant to the next nine chapters, where multiples of 25 dominate Ezekiel's vision of the temple. But many scholars also connect this number 25 to the Israelite jubilee, which was to be observed every 50 years. So during the year of jubilee, what was to happen? All debts were forgiven. And land that had been sold to pay off a debt was to be given back to the original owner. You can read about that in Leviticus 25 to 27. Now, stop for a moment and just consider what kind of world we would live in if we did that. Just imagine what would happen if every 50 years, all debts, not just some college students' debts, all debts were forgiven and the ownership of property went back to the original owner. 
that would certainly be a significant date on our calendars, would it not? You would be noting, circling, when's the next 50th year coming? When's the Jubilee? Like, this would alter our lives dramatically, would it not? I guess you guys don't know. Telling by your expression, but okay, I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep going. What would be the significance then of year 25? <laughs> the halfway point. Good. I'm glad you know your math, brother. The halfway point of the Jubilee. Here's what it would mean. It would mean that you could not help, but at this point, looking ahead. Since you were now closer to the next year of release than you were to the last one. The first time I ran around Lake Hefner, which is how long? 9.5. Add a few if you take some extra loops here and there. I did it by accident. I was coming to Oklahoma City for the first time. Uh, I was starting to run. I'd run about five miles, the most I'd run. And I saw there was this, we were staying at a hotel nearby, went to the lake. And I'm like, oh, this looks fun. I'm going to start running around. I had no idea where I was going. No idea how far it was. So I'm just going along. I figure I'll get to two and a half miles around, come back. And I figured I must be like almost around the lake. So I just kept going. Finally, I met up with a local runner, and I said, how far is it around this lake? He said, nine and a half miles. I was only going to, I've never run more than five. And so what do I do? Well, I thought about turning around, but here was the problem. He said, you're more than halfway. <laughs> so no reason to turn back now. The shortest way is to keep going. You get it? So the 25th year, heading toward a year of Jubilee, would be, would come with all sorts of ramifications. I mean, this would affect your life. The economy would automatically shift to being a buyer's market as prices begin to come down. The overall effect on society would basically be one of optimism. Looking forward, not back, but looking forward to a future of promise and hope. And that's exactly the feel of Ezekiel 40 to 48. There's no more looking back. We are looking ahead to a glorious future. And by the way, when you turn to Revelation 21, guess what you're going to find? These are some of the most optimistic, hope-filled chapters in all the New Testament. This comes when, just like in Ezekiel, after the defeat of Gog, God declares to us the arrival of a new heaven and a new earth. And God says in Revelation 21.5, Behold, I am making all things new. Feel the optimism? David feels the optimism. The, I just need a church to talk to today. All right, now, it's one thing to hear this message of hope when you haven't gotten halfway. When you haven't gotten to the other side of halfway. It's quite another thing to hear a message like this when you know you're in the 25th year, when you've turned the corner and you're in the home stretch. That's when this vision comes with a glimpse of the future that is not yet here. You're not at 50 years, but it's well underway. What would the timing of this vision have meant to the exiles in Babylon? Can you put yourself in their shoes for a moment? 
What would the timing of this vision have meant? It would have meant to them, here's the message it would have meant. The time of judgment has passed. The number 14 seems to be saying the same thing. You got your, Rusty, you ready for your math? This is the double of seven. You get, okay, so the double of seven. Isaiah 40, verse 2, foretold of the day when Israel would receive double for all her sins. Now, of course, the years of Israel's exile were not yet complete. Their return to the promised land lay yet in the future. But the date of the vision, just like the other dates in Ezekiel, is meant to tell us something. That the future that is on display in what Ezekiel is going to see in these nine chapters is to be an encouragement to the exiles that history has turned a corner. The judgment of Israel's sins has passed. The corner of history has been, has been turned. It, it really is a new day with a new future, which is also why Ezekiel notes the timing on the beginning of the year, at the new year. It's, it's New Year's Day, and what do you do on New Year's Day? You turn a corner, you turn a page, you, you get a resolution, you look into the future, right? I mean, that last week of December is maybe for reflecting, looking back, but not New Year's Day. <laughs> no, no, it's time to say, what's to come? And that's also the tone that we find set for us as Christians in Revelation 21 to 22, which is based on Ezekiel's last vision. As we get a glimpse into our future, we are to see, is it possible? that we are on the other side of halfway to the great jubilee. So we should live like it. Now, how would we do that? How would we live as if we're on the other side of halfway? Well, next, take note of where the vision happens. If there's significance, perhaps, to the date notice of the vision, which... Most commentators think there, there has to be because that moment in history, there's not really anything else that happens, so there just must be significance to when it comes. Well, then there also very well may be significance to where it comes. Notice the place where this whole thing takes place. So the date notice in verse 1 is tied to the time in which the city was struck down. And Ezekiel says that the hand of the Lord was upon him, and Yahweh brought him to the city. What city is he talking about? Well, the city that was struck down is Jerusalem. But it's striking, isn't it, that Ezekiel doesn't use the proper name. In fact, the last time Ezekiel uses the proper name Jerusalem was back in chapter 36. He doesn't do it anywhere after that, including in this vision. He seems, in fact, to have deliberately avoided it because the end of verse 1, Ezekiel 40, verse 1, says in Hebrew, the hand of Yahweh was upon me and he brought me there, Othi Shama. That's what he says. He brought me there, not to the city, but just, he brought me Othi Shama. The last verse of this section so that's Ezekiel 40, verse 1. The very last verse of the section, turn to Ezekiel 48 to see it if you want. The very last words of the book of Ezekiel says this. Here's the name of the city. 
Yahweh Shammah. The Lord is there. That's the name of the city. So Ezekiel's vision takes place where? You can say Jerusalem if you want. I mean, it's the place where the city was struck down. And this was something that happened in recent memory. 14 years earlier, just any ancient historian will tell you, Wikipedia will tell you, Nebuchadnezzar came and destroyed, torched the city of Jerusalem. So that's the same place that Ezekiel is brought to. But when he sees this vision, it's not quite the same. It's all been made new and appropriately gets a new name. Now, as we take a wide-angle lens at the entirety of this last section, what we'll see is three major sections in Ezekiel's final vision. First, right here in the old city, complete with a new name, Ezekiel will describe for us the existence of a new temple. Now, remember... Babylon had destroyed the Solomonic Temple 14 years earlier. But here in chapter 40, all the way down to chapter 43, verse 11, Ezekiel takes us on a tour of a new temple. And so, what is this temple? And what does its detailed description in these four chapters mean? Lord willing... We'll talk about that next week. The next section, which begins at Ezekiel 43, verse 12. I'm just trying to give us some handles for this section. Can we do that? Is that okay? The next section, which begins at 43, 12, tells us about the law of the temple. Extending through chapter 46, what we find in these chapters to go along with a new temple is a new Torah. Now, again, this is striking. It's the only place that we find a body of legislation in the Old Testament other than the one given to us by Moses. And while there are some similarities to the Mosaic Law, what's probably the most striking about the new Torah is that there are significant discrepancies. Now, that raises some Old Testament eyebrows. <laughs> what are we to make of these new rules that Ezekiel hears. This isn't New Testament. We're right here in the Old Testament, and we find something like a new Moses coming with a new Torah, a new law. So we got to look into that, which we'll do, Lord willing, in two weeks. Then the last section of Ezekiel's vision comes in the final two chapters as Ezekiel is told how the land of Israel is to be divided among the 12 tribes. Now, this material is also familiar. It sounds a lot like what happened in the book of Joshua after the conquest of the land, as the land is divided up among the 12 tribes. The problem is, the way that Ezekiel describes the division of the land is, again, not quite the same as the way it was in Joshua. So, we'll need to ask, what's the significance of that? So, what Ezekiel sees in this last vision is a new temple with a new Torah and new land appointments. 
But before we get into all that, notice in verse 2 that he tells us kind of the perspective he has, where he is in this city as he gets this vision. He says that he comes to, he is placed on a very high mountain. Can you try to envision it? <laughs> I'm trying to describe it in words, but you got to try to get an image in your mind right now, right? He tells us he's on a very high mountain, and what does he see? On this high mountain, there is a structure like a city to the south. This new city, some kind of new Jerusalem, is situated on the southern end of a very tall mountain. Now, this is something of a reenactment of Sinai in Exodus 19, the place where Moses encountered Yahweh and received the Torah. But this is not some do-over of Israel's story. This is the promised end of the story where the God of Israel demonstrates his sovereignty over the world and exercises his sovereignty through his rescued and redeemed people. This is a vision of the long-awaited kingdom of God. When Moses met God on Sinai, what did he receive? Torah, of course. But, I don't do you remember this? He also received a blueprint for a temple that one day would need to be built. He gets, the, he gets the diagram. He gets the description of how the temple is to be built. But in Ezekiel's vision, the temple doesn't need to be built. It's already there. such that the tour guide is going to take a, a ruler and measure it. The perplexing thing about Ezekiel's vision that concludes the book of Ezekiel is that it speaks of something that, it doesn't speak of something that has not yet come. It doesn't speak of a heavenly template that has not yet been put into reality. What Ezekiel sees in this vision is the God of Israel ruling in the land of Israel in the 25th year. Well, if you would go back to Israel in the 25th year, it wouldn't look like God was ruling. You're not going to see a temple. Things are not always the way they might appear, are they? Imagine you are one of the exiles in Babylon with Ezekiel. He comes back to you after this vision, and he says, let me tell you what's happening back home. God is ruling right now in his temple in Israel. And you say, don't think so. I mean, Ezekiel, can I remind you? The temple has been burned, the city destroyed, and we, the people of God, are in exile. What do you think Ezekiel would say? Well, he cannot quite say, no, 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 you're wrong, because they're right. Those are facts. But he also cannot say, well, that, that, this is a vision of the future. This is the way it will be one day. 
to which they might say, well, okay, maybe. Uh, we can hope for that. What would Ezekiel have to say? He would have to say, you need to have a broader perspective here. You need to know that things may not be quite like what they seem. Well, that's easy to say. But perhaps having a broader perspective like that, not denying the reality that's right there, not pretending like, well, this is just something we're looking for one day, perhaps having a broader perspective like that would help us truly grasp the significance of what was happening when Jesus went up on a mountain with his 12 disciples and gave them a new Torah. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. And when Jesus said to them, just imagine, this is at the beginning of his ministry. He's got 12 disciples. You're watching The Chosen, some of you. He's got 12 disciples. They're just trying to figure out what's going on here. He goes up on this mountain, and here's what he says to them. You are the salt of the earth. And then he said this, you are the light of the world, a city set on a hill. There's no way they might have thought. Or, well, okay, maybe one day, Jesus. But no, just as in Ezekiel's vision, Jesus says that day on the Sermon on the Mount, this is already true. You, band of disciples, you're the light of the world. You are a city set on a hill, which probably is exactly a reference to Ezekiel's vision here in Ezekiel 40. Just as in Ezekiel's vision, it's true because the future, yes, is certain, but it's so certain, it's already reality. That's Christian hope. Not a, it might come to pass, perhaps, but something so definite, so certain, so secure that you can speak of the future in the present tense. You're on the other side of halfway. And all that is ahead of you is the glorious fulfillment. So notice then at the end of verse 4 that Ezekiel is, is told, don't keep this vision to yourself, but declare all that you see to the house of Israel. This final vision is meant to, <laughs> to, to stir up God's people, stir them up to action, then as well as now. The whole point of this final vision is that it will go down deep into Ezekiel, not just for his own edification, but so that he can go back to his fellow exiles and declare it. Proclaim it. Tell them what you see, Ezekiel. 
Ezekiel is to take the message, the meaning of this vision, and go back and evangelize his people. Tell them the good news. And that's what I'm here to do to you people right now. I'm here to tell you what you should see in this vision. So evidently, Ezekiel obeyed. Praise God that he did. That's why we have these last nine chapters to this day. And it seems, commentators uh, argue, that the book of Ezekiel had massive uh, power for Israel all the way through those last years of ancient history before the arrival of Jesus. They kept the, Ezekiel's message kept the hope alive. If they believed that this message, if they believed this message that the judgment against Israel was in the rearview mirror, then they would have lived in expectation of a glorious future that was just right there, just around the corner. And we know that what happened next in Israel's story is that they did, in fact, go back to Israel. They did, in fact, go back to Jerusalem. And they did begin to rebuild the city and the temple. But the glorious future had not yet come. They're back in the land, temples being built, but you still got some foreigners that are holding the sword over you. So they waited. They waited. They waited. Then along came a prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. And what did he say? The kingdom of God is at hand. Expectation. Day of Jubilee. This is what we've been waiting for. And then he died. His death on the cross, of course, we know. We... We live in light of the Reformation. We know what the death on the cross means. This is the propitiation for Israel's sins. But don't you see what that might mean if you could rewind history and tell Ezekiel's exiles that? Like, if that's all that you see in the cross is the propitiation for our sins, and you stop your message there, then Ezekiel's fellow exiles may say, wait just a minute. I thought the judgment had already passed. Here you're telling me that God brought his judgment down? I thought we were on the other side of halfway. But then again, it was just one person there on the cross taking the wrath of God in place of the whole nation. Could it be then that with the death of Israel's Messiah came not just a day of final judgment, but also the long-awaited day of Jubilee? The one that Ezekiel and his exiles were waiting for. Well, that is the Christian claim. And we need to get it 
deep within our hearts. The disciples of Jesus following his resurrection from the dead, that's what they believed. (laughs) They went around declaring it. Have you read the book of Acts? They went around saying, let me tell you what I saw. They looked back into their Old Testament scriptures, undoubtedly to Ezekiel 40 to 48, and they reinterpreted everything that Jesus had told them in this light, and it began to all make sense. What if we, what if we believed their message? What if you and I actually say and believe The same thing the disciples believed. How would that be? We we stood up and said the Apostles' Creed. So what if we actually believed it? What if we actually began to live the way the disciples of Jesus lived as they began to see all of the Old Testament now brought to its promised fulfillment already in Jesus of Nazareth? I mean, what if we believed them? I mean, after all, they were there on the night Jesus was betrayed in the upper room when Jesus said, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. They were there. They were in the room where it happened. When the day of Jubilee... That was for you, Heather, and you missed it. That's my Hamilton reference, and you didn't even hear it. When the day of Jubilee arrived, the remission of all debts had come. What if we believed it? What if we believed it? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Paul could announce. The day of Jubilee has arrived. And Paul went on to say this, God has done what the Torah could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as a sin offering, he condemned sin when? In the Messiah, first century AD, where, he actually says in Romans 8.3, he condemned sin in the flesh of the Messiah. That's where it happened. That's where the new Jerusalem is found, in a phrase, in Christ. Now, brothers and sisters, if that's true, what should we do? Well, Ben, we don't have to do anything. We're saved by grace. You're asking the wrong question. You're answering the wrong question. What do we do in light of the fact that Jubilee has come? What are we supposed to do? Well, certainly like Ezekiel, we should declare it. That's evangelism. Tell everyone what you see. Absolutely. Yes. Amen. But it is important to our evangelism that we begin to live like what we say we believe is true. Oh, this is one of our great problems in Christianity today in America, in the Bible Belt, in Oklahoma. 
this is not incidental to our evangelism any more than it can replace our evangelism. We are called to be a city on a hill, a beacon of light to a world in darkness. What a glorious privilege it is for Jesus to say to his disciples and then to you and to me who believe his message, you, you are a city set on a hill. Evangelism takes courage because we are pulled in every direction. We are told on the one hand, what you confess, your belief, that doesn't really matter. Bunch of hypocrites. It's all about how you live. Then somebody comes along and tells us the opposite message. Well, it doesn't really matter how you live. It's all about the doctrine. It's all about the truth that you say you believe. And we're in this constant pulling between, what do we call them? Liberals, conservatives, we're tugged everywhere. Yeah, evangelism takes courage. We are called to live in the reality of what has been achieved by Jesus right here, right now. By the way, Revelation 21 says, you know it, here's a great promise. God will wipe away every tear. Death will be no more. No more crying, no more pain. And Christians are called to embody now the promised tomorrow. It's the reason why in 2,000 years of Christian history, Christians took that seriously and said, well, if there's coming a day because of what God has done in Christ, there's no more death, no more sorrow, no more pain. Maybe we should be involved in palliative care. Maybe we should help ease some pains and some sufferings. And the Christians stayed in the plague when everybody else left. Why? Kingdom of God. It's gone. Year of, year of Jubilee. Now, some of us could not possibly imagine a world with no more sorrow, no more sadness, no more pain. Perhaps you can't even imagine a world with no more gossip or no more revenge. And yet, by the grace of God, we are called to be a city on a hill. We are called to push toward the realities that are certain, so certain, in Christ that it transforms the way we live now. Are you with me? Am I, is this making sense to anybody out there? It would certainly catch the attention of the world, just like the story of Trinity Moravian Church in North Carolina did just this week. I told my wife, I was sitting, she was sitting in here with me while I was working on this sermon, and I said, whoa! Don't judge me. CNN.com. Here's the story. Trinity Moravian Church in North Carolina bought up $3.3 million of medical debt from 3,355 local families through what they called their, are you ready for this? Debt Jubilee Project. I'm like, what? Somebody believes in Jubilee. 
don't we pray every day when you pray the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts as we also forgive the debts of others. Well, I don't know. I think they owe me. I think they should pay me back. (laughs) Jubilee has come. You've been forgiven everything in Christ. How in the world then can you be a citizen of the kingdom of God and demand that you get paid back? One person, the article goes on to say, wrote this on the church's website. I'm not a churchgoer, but I just read about your debt jubilee. This is how a church should be. The world knows better than we do sometimes how we ought to act if we believed in the message of the gospel of Jesus. So Ezekiel, go tell them what you see. See how things are in Jesus right now, and that will give hope for how things will be and inspire us to live like that in the present, knowing that in the Lord, your labor will not be in vain. Let us pray. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hmm. I don't know what is to come, but I'm, well, I don't know with certainty. I can't spell it out. I can't get specific, but I know what has come. I know that what is now true because of what has come, and that's what gives me the confidence about where we're headed. Oh, that the people of God Right now, the time you've placed us on this planet, may we run the race well. May we remember what we've been taught by generations of Christians who believed that the year of Jubilee had already arrived, and it's still here. One day, Jesus went into a synagogue, and he read a place from the prophet Isaiah proclaiming the day of the Lord, the year of the Lord's release. And he said, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Oh, wow. And the revolution began. May we who claim the name of Jesus now take up the cross, knowing that in Christ our our future is secure, so secure that future has already broken into the present. And then by the power of your Holy Spirit, send us out to declare good news, both in word and in deed, so that light will begin to shine in dark places, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.